There is a ton of phenomenal history here at Sunday River, and you look at where it was years and years ago, probably just Barker, right? And that's where it started into what we have now uh, and what has been since created in the history and what it takes to get a resort from, you know, a couple lifts and a couple trails to, to what we have now at Sunday River. You'd be foolish not to constantly reflect back on how you got there, what it took to get there, and, um, you know, what, what, what the players were to get us where we are now. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Back to Sunday River today. You're going to like this one. Before we get to it, go and subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com if you haven't done so already. The podcast is just a small part of the storm. Also, follow the storm on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First up, though, Let's talk about Heli Hansen and Mountain Gazette. You all know conditions in the Northeast can be unpredictable. And if you ski every week, like my family does, you need to be prepared for anything, especially this year when your car is your base lodge. That's why we are rocking Heli Hansen gear from head to toe to keep us warm and dry no matter what Mother Nature throws at us. Heli Hansen gear is ready for anything because professionals who brave the world's harshest environments have been integral to the development of the brand's gear. This season, I'm gearing up in the Alpha Leafa Loft jacket. The more I wear this thing, the more impressed I am. I've skied about 10 days in it so far, and it is just unbelievably warm and comfortable and extremely lightweight. This thing is decked out with a Helitech waterproof, windproof, and breathable outer layer, plus the Life Pocket, which stays two times warmer than a normal ski jacket pocket keeps my phone from dying while I'm on the mountain all day long. If you want to get yourself new gear or know someone who needs to refresh their kit, visit the Heli Hansen in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, and mention this storm skiing podcast ad to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year Heli Hansen was founded. That's right, over 140 years ago. The Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. And I'm very pleased to announce that I've re-upped this partnership with Mountain Gazette for an additional six months. Really stoked on this partnership. Very excited to be part of this and watch that thing grow. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. I got the first issue in November and it's incredible. This is more of a work of art than a magazine. The thing is huge, first of all. The quality of the writing is outstanding. Huge, amazing photos. This is not like anything else in snow sports media. It's very deep, the content is varied and surprising, and it's incredibly well-conceived. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com, and you will get a PDF of that first issue as the crew works on issue 195, which takes a deep dive into the heart and soul of mountain culture at a time when newcomers, locals, and dirtbags are learning how to coexist in this new era. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 37, Brian Heon general manager of Sunday River, Maine. You want to know the two mountains I get asked about the most? They get the most attention. It's Killington and Sunday River. 
by a mile. Now, Killington, for whatever reason, tends to be a more polarizing place. I'm not really sure why that is. Personally, I love it, but that's not universal. But everyone loves Sunday River. Well, except maybe Sugar Loafers. That rivalry is still alive and well, even if it's a little tamped down in the Boyne era. But it's easy to see why people love Sunday River. It is a fantastic mountain. Huge, interesting, well laid out, spreads people out, which all makes sense. It was one of the last large mountains in the Northeast to develop its full footprint. And the knowledge and care that went into that is obvious when you ski it. But nothing is ever finished, especially in skiing. And last year, Sunday River announced its 2030 plan, a huge investment over the next decade to update the place and improve the experience. Dana Bullen, who at the time was president and general manager, joined me on the pod almost exactly one year ago to talk through all this. In the meantime, Sunday River got a new GM. Dana has stayed on as president and still plays a huge role in keeping the gears turning up at Sunday River. But between that and all the upending that COVID did, I thought now would be a good time to check in and see what we could expect out of the mountain as they recover from COVID and bend into the future. Well, let's do it. My guest today is the general manager of Sunday River, Maine. With 135 trails and glades on 870 acres spread across eight interconnected peaks served by 18 lifts, Sunday River is one of the largest ski resorts in the eastern United States. Prior to joining Sunday River last year, he spent seven years as general manager of Wildcat Ski Area in New Hampshire. He is the chair of the National Tramway Standards Board and a representative of the American National Standards Institute. Brian Heon is my guest. Brian, so good to have you. Stuart, thanks for having me. Love being a part of this. So let's go back to the beginning here. You're a veteran of the ski industry, but that's not where your career started. Where did you start? Well, right after college, uh, I had the opportunity to go work for Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Being born and raised in New England, uh, have skied all my life, I guess. Well, actually, for me, it's about four on. Um, but after college, I, I think I needed a little hiatus maybe from the snow and, and headed south for about 18 months and worked for Walt Disney World. So you're down at Walt Disney. What did you do down there? What did you learn? Uh, I worked in their parks and recreation department. So I, I worked at Blizzard Beach, which is one of their water parks. Um, I did everything from working with lifeguards, training lifeguards. I did some work with the Disney Institute. I taught a few classes, uh, how to train somebody to train somebody called Training the Trainer, which was a lot of fun. Uh, just really being involved with anything outdoor in, in their recreation and water park division. Am I right that they have a chairlift at Blizzard Beach? Yes, they do. Yeah, it was the only <laughs> chairlift in the state of Florida. And looking back now in my experience with chairlifts, I was like, maybe this was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get away from like, it. Yeah, wherever <laughs> I turned, right? Even in Florida. <laughs> so you spent 18 months at Disney. How did you transition into the ski industry from there? Um, I, I loved my Disney experience. I mean, what, what, what a really neat company to work for, especially out of college, especially in their parks and recreation. What a, what a great experience for me on a lot of levels. But I knew that eventually my heart was, was in skiing. Um, grew, like I said, grew up skiing, uh, raced at the collegiate level a little bit in college, and just really had a passion for the industry. And I knew one day that I'd, I'd want to get in to work for the ski industry. So uh, I left Orlando, Florida, and uh, drove west. And I found myself, my, my original destination was, was Lake Tahoe. I had a roommate from college who lived there. And I said, well, maybe I'll try that for a little bit. But uh, along my way, I stopped in uh, Park City, Utah, because that was, I think it was just announced in the late 90s when I headed out west 
that that was going to be the home to the 2002 Olympic Games. So I said, I, I got to check out this this little place called Park City, just out of Salt Lake. <laughs> and um, and uh, I, I ended up just uh, by people I met in town when I got there. Uh, that was my home for about 13 years. And I worked for the Canyon Resort, which at that time was part of the American Ski Company. Oh, wow. So how did working for Disney set you up for a job in the ski industry? Because they sound very different, but when you get into it, you're really doing a lot of the same things. You're entertaining people, you're running a kind of complex ecosystem that people immerse themselves in for a kind of escapist experience, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that um, what I did at Disney and some of the, the uh, my experiences there really played into getting into and understanding the ski industry. Um, there were a lot of uh, similarities between running uh, a water park, which had, you know, 50 or 60 uh, lifeguards to running a lift infrastructure that had 50 or 60 operators, right? And um, some of the training that you needed to go through to become a lifeguard, and then some of the training that you went through to become um, a lift operator. Although two extremes, a, a lot of similarities uh, in the processes used at, at both levels. So you spent 13 years at Canyons. What were you doing there, and, and where did you go when you left Canyons? Yeah, I was at the yeah 13 years. Uh, I started out in lift operations. Um, it was just kind of a natural fit for me. Uh, I spent a lot of my winters operating lifts, uh, training lift operators. I put together a program where we trained about 150 to 160 lift operators a year. Uh, and I spent my summers. My first summer, I, I was just interested in, in staying at the resort and doing whatever it took. Uh, so I got into uh, chairlift construction. At the time, the American Ski Company was putting in about, I think, three brand new lifts and during one summer and also moving one lift from one side of the resort to another. So there was a ton of uh, opportunity there. And I, and I really started to take some of the stuff I learned all winter long and, and, and use that in the lift construction. So I did lift construction for uh, a number of summers while I was out there as well. So. so where did you go after Canyon? Did you go straight to Wildcat? No, after the Canyons, uh, I met my wife and our first daughter was born in, in Park City. And we had an opportunity to move back to closer to home, as, as my wife and I call it. Well, both of our families uh, are still in the New England area. So when an opportunity at Mount Snow came up, it, it seemed good to kind of maybe get a little closer to family with, with uh, our, our youngest, you know, wanting to grow up a little bit more near grandparents and cousins and whatnot. So uh, we ended up uh, finding a home at Mount Snow with Peak Resorts. And where did you grow up skiing, Brian? I grew up in Connecticut, so I grew up skiing at uh, Ski Sundown, and then uh, my family and I we were weekend warriors to Southern Vermont. So uh, every Friday night we would drive the 91 corridor uh, from outside of Hartford right up to Southern Vermont, and uh, we skied, learned to ski at Stratton, did a ton of skiing at Mount Snow and Bromley and Magic, uh, Okemo. So well, I tell you what, they're having a good day at Ski Sundown today. I think they got a foot yesterday. <laughs> That's a big day at Ski Sundown. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I don't know if they really know what to do with it, uh, but <laughs> you know they'll they'll have a good time with it. Um, so you're working at Mount Snow. Uh, what were you doing there, and then and then take us through your transition up to Wildcat. Sure. Yeah, Mount Snow. I started out in lift operations, so uh, a lot of the same uh, roles I had in Utah, and quickly grew into more of a. a, a bigger mountain ops piece for me at Mount Snow. I had the opportunity to work with the patrol there, uh, lift ops, lift maintenance, the ambassador programs, uh, tubing. So uh, really started to 
get my feet wet in multiple mountain ops departments. And then uh, after three years to the day uh, of being at Mount Snow, uh, Jesse Boyd asked me uh, if I would be interested in, in uh, running a resort for him. And he didn't tell me which resort at first. And I was like, oh, man, is he going to ask me to move to the Midwest? Or what's this going to be all about? <laughs> <laughs> right? So some excitement, but I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can move right. to the Midwest. Um, but no, he, he then uh, asked me to go up and visit Wildcat. Um, which was a newer uh, addition to the Peaks team uh, at, at that point in my career. And, and I think it had been under the Peak umbrella for about a year at that point in time. So uh, it was a wonderful opportunity and a nice way for me and my growing family to, to continue to live in, in ski towns and ski environments. And uh, so we moved to North Conway and, and was at Wildcat for about seven years. I mean, that's the right straw to draw, right? That That is a great mountain. That That's the skiers mountain among the old peak portfolio. Very beloved ski area among New Hampshire skiers. Uh, were you familiar with Wildcat? Had you skied it when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, I think once or twice. Um, not a ton. Just from Connecticut getting up that way, it was a little bit further. Um, but certainly, like you said, a very iconic resort in, in, in our industry, especially here in New England. Um, the age of it. Um, the mystique of being right across the street, uh, unobstructed from Mount Washington. And when you're at Wildcat, I mean, the skiing there is phenomenal. But as you look across it, you know, you see the presidential range and Tuckerman's Ravine staring you right in the face. Uh, what a great little spot that is. Yeah, I, th- I think they got 42 inches in the last week or something. They've been getting hammered up there or, or, or they're projected to get it. I was, I was looking over on the snow earlier, um, and they're they're right in the bullseye after having a very slow start to the season. So it's you know Wildcat is not a huge ski area, but like you said, it's a very important one, one of the oldest ski areas in the country, one of the and the oldest in New England. Period. Um, what was that sense of stewardship like, Brian, knowing you were in charge of something that was so meaningful to generations of skiers? Yeah, I, I think like a lot of resorts, there, there's a lot of history there, and a lot of people um, have great ownership of, of where they ski and. and that's where they skied with their parents and potentially even their grandparents. I think what hit me hard with Wildcat is one of the first general managers of Wildcat, his name was Stan Judge. And once every six to eight weeks, Stan would just show up at the resort. What a distinguished man in our industry. Even at the age of 92, he'd show up in my office unannounced, usually in the afternoon, would share a cup of coffee and he'd come with a shoebox full of pictures. Right. And it was just, Awesome. I mean, the stories he would sit there and tell and show me the pictures of him, you know, driving a bulldozer with no shirt on in a parking lot, creating a leech field or, 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 you know, just all of these phenomenal, like putting in the snowmaking pond or cutting the trail infrastructure or, you know, building the gondola. It just, just the history there is, it was really, it was, it, you know, at, at, you could feel it at the resort, but when you're sitting there with, with somebody who just had that much buy-in, um, and passion, it was really fun to, to do that. And that, that every, every time he'd come to the resort, I would just be reminded of the legacy that, that Wildcat has. I mean, that is such a tremendous resource to have because the one kind of theme I see over and over again with a lot of these Northeastern ski areas is they go through sequences of management changes or ownership changes and institutional knowledge is lost and the history is lost. And, and that's, that's important for sentimental reasons, but it's also just important as you're trying to operate the mountain, right? So, I mean, when you were running into problems like, hey, we're, you know, trying to put some snowmaking pipe in here. We found this when we opened up the ground. Do you know what that's all about? Was he able to give you that kind of context? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. And he was one of many folks up in that area um, who just had so many years of, of being on that hill um, and doing work up there. Just just knowing who those folks were, um, the fact that they still, whether they worked for the mountain or not, um, still would pick up the phone and talk through that with you just because they still had a passion for what they were involved with or what Wildcat it was. I mean, it's interesting that you say that, too, because Wildcat was owned by Peak Resorts, which is a, a corporate or was. It's now, of course, absorbed by Vail, but this corporate ski conglomerate. And and I think the general perception is a lot of times these mountains lose a little bit of their character in these transitions. And I don't personally think that's always true. I think that's a generalization. Uh, but it sounds like what you're saying here is that is that Peak Resorts and the way that they manage this allowed for... Uh, a management style that would honor that history and, and would not close off the old guard, so to speak, uh, just because they weren't necessarily a Peak Resorts employee or in charge of the mountain anymore. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And a lot of these, a lot of resorts, you know, it's, it's, it's whether the management changes or whatever it looks like, I think it's, it's hard to take that, that feel out of the resort, right? I mean, you walk into the Wildcat Base Lodge, it's, you can't take the smell out of it. You can't take the memories out of it. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of resorts, that's that's definitely ingrained and entrenched. As we said, it had a, a tremendous history. A lot of people probably appreciated that you acknowledged and honored that history. However, everything needs to evolve. Uh, in your seven years at Wildcat, what did you do to help push that area forward and uh, adapt to the modern ski landscape? I think one of the, the first things that um, when I got there, I think, was snowmaking. That was a big thing that, that Wildcat um, had just not had the opportunity to to really look at the infrastructure as well as the technology that was um, on the hill. So given some of the strengths that um, Peak Resorts had in the snowmaking side of the business, um, that was one of the, the first things we really did is, is we, uh, after a year, we, we had a really major overhaul of the snowmaking system. Uh, as I remember, it was about 56,000 feet of pipe, a couple hundred guns, booster pump houses, um, <clears throat> really getting low E, technology uh, at the resort. It was something that they uh, really was very, very limited at Wildcat. So uh, it was a nice opportunity to, to take an iconic resort, upgrade some of the infrastructure and, and get some new technology on the hill. So Peak Resorts, for those who don't know, was actually headquartered in Missouri. And the gentleman who started it, he owned a golf course and then he just decided, okay, I'm going to make a ski hill and he, and he made it work. So I think he was coming into this with an enormous appreciation for the importance of snowmaking, because in Missouri, obviously, uh, not only do you need snowmaking to operate at all, but you need very sophisticated snowmaking because you only have certain windows you can make it in. So can you just talk a little bit about Peak Resort's commitment to snowmaking and how you saw that play out in your time at Mount Snow and Wildcat? Yeah, I, th I think you hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, having a, a corporate um, philosophy that really embraces uh, snowmaking is, is super important. Um, at a lot of resorts, especially whether you're in the, the West, the Pacific Northwest, the East Coast, the Southeast, wherever you are. Um, but I think that, that that needs to start at the top down for sure. And I think that creating that culture um, is something that, uh, looking back at my time with Peak Resorts, that was really abundant and clear throughout the throughout the process. So, so Peak Resorts had a fun run, but it is no more. In the summer of 2019, Vail bought the entire portfolio, 17 mountains, which included Wildcat. Uh, meaning you were suddenly a Vail Resorts employee. What was your reaction to that news? Yeah, it was. Uh, it it kind of came to as a surprise. I think when transitions like that happen, um, you know, you, you go through just kind of a change curve, or you, um, 
which was fun for me professionally to go through, right? Um, you know, Vail Resorts is certainly a, a wonderful company. I think, you know, it's just very successful and they have their fair share of iconic resorts across the United States as well. So um, definitely a change for me and, and for the company, but just, just like anything else from when, um, you know, went from American Ski Company and working in Park City, Utah to working uh, for Peak Resorts in Mount Snow in Southern Vermont, um, whether it's the company you work for, or the environment you work for, uh, work in, uh, there's always a lot of different things and a lot of different challenges. Uh, reminds me of my first day at Mount Snow and, and I'd run chairlifts for, run chairlifts and built chairlifts and worked some great teams in, in Utah. And I'll never forget the first time I went home after de-icing a chairlift, which is something <laughs> I never did in Utah, right? Right. So I came back and my wife, um, <clears throat> she worked in, in lifts for a long time. So she's very proficient with lifts. And I was telling her just about what I did all day for like 12 or 14 hours. Like there was ice on everything. Like the shiv wheels would turn. And I was like, uh, like, she's like, what did you sign up for? It was just kind of this, <laughs> this point. It was like, oh my gosh. So, you know, regardless of, of the management team, the management culture, the ownership or, or the area, the country you live in, there's always certainly differences. Did you leave Canyons before Vale bought it? Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. They're, well, they were chasing you for a while. <laughs> sounds like. Yeah, sounds like. It. <laughs> Finally, got you a wildcat. All right. So, so now you're at Sunday River, and you started there last spring. How did this opportunity at Sunday River come up, and why did you think it would be a good fit? Yeah, I, you know, I think being in the industry, like I said, you know, in the east and the west, I, I've known a few people that um, had worked for for Boyne Resorts, and and I uh, somebody who I had known and. and still do and has always kept in high regard is, is Rick Kelly. And I think that um, I had the opportunity to, to sit with him a little bit and um, really understand, uh, you know, some of the needs uh, here at Sunday River and also um, who Boyne and Sunday River were, you know, are as a company. And um, after that, I just kind of got, kind of got giddy. You know, I, I really was like, man, did I, I really connected with, with some of the things that that he said, and I had the opportunity to talk to Mike Unruh, one of our senior vice presidents of mountain operations, um, as well. And and I think that it just it was an opportunity that just suited me so well. I, I just I, I couldn't be more happy with the culture uh, at Boyne and with that Sunday River. And I think it, it complements my management style. And I think that I am a, a collaborator. I love to be involved, and um, it's something that that is really prevalent here at Boyne. And um, especially at Sunday River as well. So you've had several months to sink in. How are you and your family liking Bethel and how are you liking Sunday River? We love it. We love it. Um, I think Sunday River as a resort is, is so impressive to me. There are days I just get to the office and you look out and you're just like, wow, it's it's just such an honor to, to be part of this team here at the resort and, and just the vastness of it. So, I, you know, that part is, is really fulfilling to me on a lot of levels. And uh, my family's doing well. You know, it's, it's, Stuart, it's an interesting time to move a family. I took the job in May or started in May and then uh, two young girls. So looking to make that move uh, during a COVID environment was certainly something my wife and I spoke a little bit about. And, um, I mentioned before, you know, we moved from Utah to Vermont and then to New Hampshire. And so we've, we've always obviously, you know, moved as a family, but this was the first time we've moved and it's really the kids have been able to kind of ask some questions about moving right mm -hmm. and i think yeah. that uh you know before we just put them in the car seat put them in the car and as long as they were with mom and dad they were kind of happy this is the first time we've actually uh removed them from a friends or a school environment that they can somewhat remember and 
one day we were talking to the girls when we decided to move to Bethel and we were telling them about it. And we're, we're moving at a very fast pace with this because it just felt so right for, for us mm-hmm. as a family. And um, my youngest looked at me and she said, Dad, when we move, can we take the doors with us from this house? And I was like, <laughs> what the hell is she talking about? And I remember she had her favorite poster on the door. Um, yeah. And that's when I looked at my mom like, we need to slow this down, right? Like yeah. this, this, this poor little one has really no idea of what this is. And the last time she did this, she she was too young to remember. So we, we, we need to respect that the, the, the children might have a little, few questions as, as we make this process. But um, once we got through, we don't take the doors with us when we move from house to house. Um, I, I think we, it's been a really great move uh, for the family, and we're, we're really enjoying Bethel. And uh, the kids are able to get up and, and enjoy Sunday River? Oh, yeah. They love it. They love it. In fact, they'll, they'll, school finishes today, and they'll be, they'll be up here skiing this afternoon. So. so I think you took over the mountain at probably one of the most challenging times in the history of the ski industry to have taken over a mountain. And I imagine you were kind of pedal to the metal for several months figuring out what the hell to do and which way it was up. Uh, but now that you've had a few months to run it and kind of see it through the holidays and everything else, I'm just curious of your impressions of managing this mountain. Uh, which is much bigger than Wildcat. So managing this mountain as compared to your old job. Yeah, I mean, size-wise, for sure, Sunday River is is definitely the largest mountain aside from, you know, Utah that I've, I've been a part of and, and the first one that I've been had the opportunity to be the general manager at a resort of this size. So a little overwhelming at first. Certainly, it's so impressive, the infrastructure that we have here, whether it's the snowmaking, the lifts, facilities, a lot of large systems. Uh, with that also comes a pretty awesome senior team. I think one of the, the most well-rounded and, and highest regarded senior teams I've have ever had the opportunity to be a part of, um, which really made my transition here a lot easier. So how did your time at Wildcat prepare you for this job? You know, being a smaller mountain, there's still a lot of similarities, like you said, with the de-icing, the weather, all these kind of things. Yeah, I think, you know, Wildcat was my first role is, is in the general manager position. Um, and so starting out a little smaller, we're certainly a little bit more comfortable. I think, you know, understanding all the multiple layers of, of resort operations is, is something that that uh, I definitely learned a lot of at Wildcat and was able to take some of those experiences here. Um, whether you're working with a ski school, a rental team, a lift maintenance team, uh, a lot of the work at Wildcat was with forest service and permitting. So just really learning all the ins and outs of, of what it takes to, to run a successful resort. Uh, and then, you know, rolling that over and, and uh, taking my skill set there and, and joining this team here was uh, certainly a challenge, but uh, something that I just absolutely love and enjoy. So you mentioned that strong senior leadership team and Sunday River President Dana Bullen joined me on the podcast right around this time last year when the mountain announced its Sunday River 2030 plan. At the time, he also held the general manager role. He has stayed on at Sunday River as president, even as you've transitioned into the GM role. Help us understand, Brian, how your roles differ and how you and Dana work together to manage the resort. Yeah, Dana and I, I mean, we talk multiple times a day um, and what a, what a phenomenal person inside and out. So Dana's role, yeah, cer- certainly has trans- transitioned over since I've had the opportunity to join the team. Um, and he's been doing a lot of 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 work helping us with our 2030 plan, as well as some expansion. I think, you know, we have Merrill Hill coming online. He's got a really strong involvement with that. Um, so it's it's been nice that 
Ben has really taken a step out of our day-to-day operation. But yet he's still here and he loves to provide uh, the history of, of how we do things, why we've done things. Not to say that we're not changing things, but at the same time, it's nice to have the history here and nice to have his perspective being as part of Boyne and, and Sunday River for as long as he has. He, he certainly knows um, where a lot of things are and why a lot of things are done the way they are. So it's, it's really been helpful to have his direction. Yeah, Dana and I talked a lot about that American Skiing Company legacy and Boyne's commitment to honoring that past while moving Boyne ahead or by moving Sunday River ahead. I, have you been impressed by that in relation to your experience at Wildcat and what we spoke to earlier with Peak respecting the history of that mountain? A hundred percent. Yep. Yep. Uh, there, there is a ton of phenomenal history here at Sunday River and you look at where it was years and years ago, probably just Barker, right? And that's where it started and to what we have now uh, and what has been since created in the history and what it takes to get a resort from, you know, a couple lifts and a couple trails to, to what we have now at Sunday River. You'd be foolish not to constantly reflect back on how you got there, what it took to get there and, um, you know, what, what, what the players were to get us where we are now. Um, and, uh, that, that, that you know, the history and, and how things are done, uh, it certainly is a big part of, of what we do here to this day. And as you mentioned, you have some American skiing company experience yourself back when they owned the canyons. And it's really interesting here, Brian, if you look at your career, you've worked for four of the big ski conglomerates of our time, American skiing company, peak resorts, Vail resorts, and Boyne, um, obviously Two of those no longer exist, but I'm just curious how the character of each of those differs as far as how they manage or manage their mountains and how much latitude you have with day-to-day decision-making. Yeah, every, every um, ownership group certainly has their, their own flavor, right? Their own way they do things. And it's been interesting for me to kind of at some point just step back and reflect about what I thought was good or what I thought was different about each one of those. Um, I, I can certainly say, though, I think for from my history and what I've seen and in my comfort level, um, I I've, haven't felt uh, as comfortable as I do right now. And I, and I really think that when it comes to Boyne Resorts and, and this, the team here at Sunday River, this is this has been a, a, an easy transition for me. And I think um, I just really love the environment here and the, the amount of collaboration that we're able to, to, to have here at the resort level, but then also with our, with our corporate team. Um, it's, it's, it's very impressive. Yeah, what is it about Boyne to you that really resonates and really makes you feel at home there as compared to your time with Vale and Peak? I know Boyne has just a little bit different structure. They don't have like that big corporate office like Vale has in Broomfield. They're distributed across the country at their different resorts. So it's, it's, a, it's always been a little bit different kind of company. But you know, speaking as someone who works there and has had a chance to get to know the culture, what, what is it about it that's so appealing and makes you feel so comfortable there? I, I think I, I use the word collaboration a little bit, and, and by nature, that's that's what I do. Um, you know, I'm not one to just make a decision, and that's the way it is. I, I think having everybody's input is is a crucial piece on a lot of levels. So I think that's one thing that that here at, at Sunday River and at Boyne we've always done, and, and, and done really well since I've been here. Um, and that's just a culture that I've come into and had the opportunity to join and to add to. Um, so I think that that's one of the the things that really stands out to me the most, you know, in looking back over the past eight months. So how well have you gotten to know the company? Have you had a chance to ski all nine Boyne Mountains yet? No, not yet. You know, with the 
COVID and the travel, I just, I haven't, uh, I've skied Loon before. I mean, not this year. The Olympics I've skied this year is, is Sunday River. Um, was excited to get to Big Sky. Never been to Big Sky. Um, the NSAA show was supposed to be out there this year, and that kind of got put on the back burner. So uh, my time to ski Olive Oil Resorts uh, is hopefully in the future. I'm sure you'll get to them all yeah. sooner or later. Yeah. Uh, so when Dana and I were talking last year, uh, we we really talked through the Sunday River 2030 plan. That plan had just been announced, and, and obviously that was pre-COVID. So I would imagine that may have shifted some timelines around a little bit. And we could talk about specifics of that 2030 plan in a bit. But first, do you want to just give us a sense of where you're at with Sunday River 2030 today? Yeah, I mean, it, it's still something we talk about all the time. And I think that, you know, um, we are certainly in deep of, of still continuing to plan and to refine and to to make things happen um, in a timely manner. Um, you know, we've had some first steps in the plan, and, and I think we've hit those, right? I mean, everything from RFID this year being new, uh, snowmaking upgrades are happening, uh, our Dream Maker, our Merrill Hill, you know, the golf course. So I think that, you know, we're, the foundation is there, and, and we are looking to certainly continue that in kind of a short-term, a mid-term, and, and a long-term plan. Um, and so those are still talked about uh, daily, if not weekly. All right, so let's talk through each of those. And I, I'd imagine your answer to some of these is going to be TBD, and that's totally understandable. But uh, let's start with RFID. Uh, th- those are in place. I think that was a big project for Sunday River, just given the number of chairlifts that you have and the size of the resort. Uh, but how is that working out so far from your point of view? I think it's great. I think that uh, the guests love it. I think that, uh, you know, that it, the technology is working really well. Um, we've we had a, I think the devil's in the details with a lot of this, but the team this summer did a phenomenal job in executing the build out of that. Um, our IT team, our mountain ops team, watching those guys collaborate and really get this stuff done once and done right. Um, certainly paid off in spades because, um, you know, our gate systems are up. And um, when you have the media and you go there, the gates open if they're supposed to. Um, and I think we've had a lot of success with it so far. So, uh, and even given the code environment, it's, it's been a nice add on with that. I think that, uh, you know, being able to give guests a little bit more time, a little bit more room and having those gates help to, to manage flow um, has certainly been a helpful thing for us. And not a moment too soon in the COVID era. Right. For sure. For sure. Maybe you can answer this question for me because you're a, a chairlift guy and you've worked so much with them. I've always wondered why they put the RFID gates right before the lift, right before you get on the lift, rather than at the beginning of the maze. Because then if there's a problem and you've already gone through the whole maze, you have to kind of go all the way back out. So do you know why they do it that way? Right. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with setup. And, and when you're here at Sunday River, you'll see that um, by design, you know, the six pack, uh, the Chandala gates are further back from the load here point yep. than some of the other lifts. And, and there's a lot of thought that went into that, right? So you don't want them too close where it is hindering your uphill capacity, right? So if there's a problem, you still want enough time to react to that. But, um, you know, having them further back, um, you know, that too also creates problems because um, then if you can't get into the maze area, then your maze is actually extending further uphill. So, um, you know, the, I think there is kind of a sweet spot um, but it really makes you rethink your um, maze area design and flows. So having that RFID, the new maze design with RFID, and then having to simultaneously work through some COVID distancing uh, certainly created a, a fun challenge for the Mountain Ops guys. 
Yeah, it, it's it's funny because when you think about Sunday River lift by lift, I mean, you have Barker where people are coming in from both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have that Chandala, as you mentioned, then you have some of your more remote lifts um, where it may not be so easy to get help if if you're, uh, you know, if you're down by South Lodge and that happens, then there's no big deal. You just can go in and get help. But if you're out by Aurora or something, you might you might have a little ways to go to get back to figure that out. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff we can do in the field that we're really learning to, to you know, if there is these one-off problems that we have iPads that um, the operators have been trained on so we can do some troubleshooting if there is a problem. But I think that, you know, overall, the, the success of our RFID uh, has been really, I think, from the mountain ops and the IT side has, has been pretty smooth, as well as uh, the guest side seems to be um, really happy with, with uh, the fact that they don't have to take their pass out of their pocket. And, uh, you know, all it is is the learning curve of what pocket to put it in, uh, as opposed to will this gate open? It's like, yeah, will I just need to remember to put it in my sleeve pocket instead of, uh, you know, putting it up on my helmet or whatever. So. Yeah, and, and without the RFID card from another mountain. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably the biggest problem I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Merrill Hill. Uh, where are you at with Merrill Hill? And well, I guess what's the plan for it and where are you at with that plan? Yeah, Merrill Hill is, is on our doorstep. Um, we're super excited about the project. Uh, it's coming along. In fact, we had a call on it this morning. So uh, things are moving ahead at, at a rapid and exciting pace on Merrill Hill. Um, we're scheduled to build a lift on Merrill Hill this summer. Uh, that'll be fun. Uh, we're planning on putting some snowmaking in, cutting the trails, building a road, putting power infrastructure. So uh, Merrill Hill is certainly um, hot on our doorstep, if, if not here. Um, so it's a, it's an exciting project. It's uh, going to be some unbelievable skiing and ski out home properties up there. Uh, I've had the opportunity to hike up there a bunch. The, the view across this resort and um, then on one side of the hill and then on the other side, looking across the golf course over the Jordan are just... Uh, it's going to be hard to top some of these views from all of the lots up on Merrill Hill. It's it's impressive. So as you have it planned now, we'll be skiing Merrill Hill next season. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I, we're going to see about the skiing piece of it. Um, we're, we're definitely, the focus is to get the infrastructure in ASAP, and that's going to be a, a pretty aggressive summer to, to get that up and going. And there's a lot to that. So I think depending on the, the, the scope of the work and the speed of the project, you know, when you come here next year, you'll definitely see some new trails over there and you'll see some new, uh, a new lift. What kind of chairlift are you dropping in there? Uh, it'll be a Doppelmeyer lift. It'll be a fixed grip triple. Great. And, and the vertical drop, what's that, about 700 feet over there? Oh, gosh, you'd have to ask me that. I think it's a little more than that. Okay. Yeah, about seven or 800 feet vertical feet. Yep. And as you look at your future ops plans and maybe you haven't thought through this yet but there's sort of a rhythm with which you open sunday river right and it and it has to give access to all the different peaks and the different hotels and everything else is this is merrill hill something that you would probably prioritize for early season snow given the real estate development you're seeing there yeah for sure you know it's definitely going to come into our plan pretty early when it with regards to opening and snow making you know to ensure some ski and ski out for homeowners over there but so definitely yeah when we're when we're looking at at uh you know prioritizing moving from one pot of snow making into another uh merrill hill will probably be you'll definitely see that uh sooner than later what's your inventory looking like over there on lots for sale Gosh, we, we've got quite a few. Um, you know, the real estate team is is aggressively uh, touring it over there, and it's like I said, it's it's once you get a tour over there, Stuart, it's it's hard not to say, boy, there's a view I'd like to have from my ski in and ski out property. It's 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 awesome. 
and those are pretty expensive lots. Uh, what kind of what, what does this kind of high end development tell you about the kinds of skiers who are making long term commitments to Sunday River? Yeah, I, I, it's been interesting. I've been on a few of the tours over there, and, and I really think that um, what I've been seeing is is just people who really are passionate about skiing, right? And people who are passionate about being part of a resort and having that ski in and ski out part of it. Um, I was on one just the other day, and and uh, standing up on the hillside with somebody from our real estate team and, and some guests who are looking at it. And it was just awesome just to, to watch this woman just kind of talk about her grandchildren growing up here and having this, 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 this family home where they can all come and they can recreate. And it's, you know, a, a four season place where they can all spend time together and, and have some really great amenities, especially to ski in and ski out. And, um, you know, it kind of brought me back to, to, we did not growing up as a child, I did not have skiing and ski out, but on those rare occasions we did, I mean, some of the memories that I have with my family of, of being able to ski into the condo for lunch and ski out, I just, it's, it's super fun. Right. And, and so it, it's fun to be part of, of people's vision to, to see that for their family. It definitely changes the whole experience. Have you, how much thought have you put into what kind of terrain will be on that hill? Are we looking at some fun stuff over there, or is this just going to be commuter trails down from the summit to the main lifts? There'll, there'll be some decent skiing over there. I mean, our goal certainly right off is to have green circle terrain um, from the top down, just so everybody who has homes over there can access it regardless of, of, of your ability. Uh, the lift line might have some fun skiing in it, Stuart. That's going to be kind of interesting. There's going to be some shots in the lift line. I think it'd be okay. fun to go ski. <laughs> nice. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's going to be pretty extensive, uh, 100% snowmaking. So uh, it's going to be an exciting addition to, to our resort. Yeah, I was interviewing Chip Siemens, the president of Wyndham, the other day on the podcast, and he came up at Sunday River, worked there for about a dozen years uh, back in the 90s and, and late 80s. And we were talking about how well Sunday River is designed as far as having uh, blue, black, and green terrain off just about every peak. And there's always a way down in it. <laughs> I'm always amazed I can ski from the top of Jordan to the bottom of Whitecap in one run. That that just blows my mind, how how well that was all thought out. Um, is the idea with Merrill to replicate that same sort of terrain variety? Yeah, I don't think we're going to have any right now, any uh, black diamond terrain on Merrill Hill on phase one, at least. So I think you're going to just see a little bit more of the uh, beginner to intermediate skiing on Merrill Hill. All right, let's talk about chairlifts. No getting around the chairlift conversation when it comes to Sunday River. That, that's, it seems like that's all anyone ever wants to talk about. Um, I don't think they're going to be happy, Brian, until you can teleport them to the top of the mountain. But let's talk about these lifts anyway. Uh, Barker is the flashpoint. This is the one everyone wants to know about. Sunday River 2030 called for a new lift at Barker in the, quote, short term. Where are you at with that? And what do you have in mind for a lift? Yeah, I think, you know, Barker is certainly a, a point of congestion on our hill. You know, it just, it's, it's the, uh, the GACP um, meeting spot in the morning, a lot of seasonal place. And, and a lot of the, uh, we'll call them the old time Sunday River folks, uh, love to ski out of the Barker area. So, so certainly, you know, one that uh, we're, we're looking at. Um, it's been interesting that, that that lift, actually, though, the, the current lift, that, that's, that's a great machine. That, that moves people uphill pretty fast as, as designed. But I think, you know, as, like you said, it's on our short-term plan. Let's really look at, at what lift makes sense there. And I still think we're, we're, we're still hemming and hawing a little bit about that. But I think that, you know, having uh, a new machine there is, is certainly something that will happen soon. Do you think we'll see a six-pack? 
I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I think that there's there's a lot of excitement, a lot of different ideas coming around, and I think that you know with with some of the new machines out there, and you start to see six packs and eight packs and loading conveyors. I, I think that that technology in our lift industry is is certainly on the forefront. Obviously, the major manufacturers, but you know here at the resort level, really trying to understand what the best capacity is. Because um, that's what it comes down to is how many people can we move uphill, you know, people per hour is when we look at these lifts and, and maximizing how many people we can get up there. And it has everything to do with the size of the carrier to the speed of the lift to the interval of how many chairs are on it. So there's, there's a lot of factors. Do you have a timeline for the Barker replacement? No, not as of right now. Certainly in the short term, uh, will not be this summer, but uh, looking at, at uh, a couple years ahead for sure. So the only lift we're likely to see next summer is Merrill. Uh, this summer, correct, Merrill Hill. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Then uh, Sunday River Twenty Thirty also called for a new chair at Jordan in the short term for quote improved wind performance. And Dana and I talked a little bit about the technology that allows for more sway resistant chairs. Uh, where are you at with Jordan? Yeah, the technology out there is is really is really unbelievable, and we've been working with some of the manufacturers and really understanding what that technology is. You know, each chair has its own glycol system in it. So when the chair blows one way, the, the fluid goes the other way and it kind of counters out the, the, the swing of the chair. So we are actively uh, understanding what that kind of technology is. And certainly that's something that's that we're trying to really wrap our head around and understand. Because I think that that technology could really affect the reliability of the Jordan lift with uh, the wind that that machine sees at, at the very top. Does Boyne have any of those lifts in its system right now? Do you know? Uh, it does not. In fact, we're just starting to learn about how many of those there are in North America um, and in really understanding that technology and, and, and where the industry is with it um, because it's something we are very, very interested in uh, when it comes to that Jordan lift. Are there any other lifts that you're concerned about wind holds Sunday River? No, not really. I think, you know, uh, the maintenance team here does a phenomenal job with that, and it all depends on which way the wind is coming. Uh, you know, northwest winds certainly are not our favorite here when it comes to putting things on wind hold. You know, the Chandala we've been playing around this year, you probably see the cabins are off a little bit more than they have been in the past, but um, we're finding that when the wind is coming from the correct direction or the incorrect direction, I should say, uh, it can really affect that the cabin. So we've been taking those off and having a lot of success with that lift. Okay, so you can still run the six chairs. Yep. If you if you instead of having to shut the whole thing down. Okay, yep. that's smart. Yep. Yeah, nice. exactly. Yeah, we've been playing with that a lot this year, and I think it's had some real wins. So. Nice. Uh, Aurora has been listed on Sunday River Twenty Thirty as a midterm upgrade. Uh, what's your thinking with Aurora? Yeah, some of the midterm um, stuff are still a little bit out. You know, looking at uh, some of these areas. You know, we've been playing around with the detachable lift, but also, you know, there are other ways to upgrade a lift, right? I think we've had a little, we've had some success with loading conveyors. And I think that that's something that we're also keeping in mind where we feel that a detachable lift is not needed, that um, really getting the efficiency, the uphill people per hour out of a fixed grip chair and definitely playing with the idea of putting loading conveyors on something that uh, personally, I, I feel is really helpful for uphill capacity. Uh, if you talk to somebody that sells a loading conveyor, I think they say, you know, with a loading conveyor, you can eliminate 60 to 80 percent of your slows and your stops on a machine. Um, and that in amongst itself, as well as uh, sometimes when you add a loading conveyor to a lift, you can actually increase the line speed of that machine by about 50 feet per minute. So, you know, with 60 to 80 percent less slows and stops and a little bit faster uh, line speed, that lift can quickly become a, a really uh, efficient way to move people uphill per hour.
Yeah, you do have one on Spruce, and that's a pretty new lift. So are, are you learning some things from Spruce that would help you maybe over at Aurora? Yeah, yep, for sure. Um, you know, we're really the reliability of that of the Spruce chair is is, is wonderful. I think we're we, we really are happy with the loading conveyor, uh, the experience, the loading experience, as well as getting that machine to go a little bit faster has certainly been a win for us here at Sunday River. That's what kind of why I bring it up as, as just another kind of tool in our arsenal to, as we upgrade these lifts, there's just so many different ways that you can do it. You know, we're leaving nothing on the table when it comes to considering what our options are. How about North Peak? Uh, there was also a, a long-term upgrade at North Peak, so I'd imagine there's nothing that you have to announce there, but do you have any sense as you get to know the mountain for what you may like to do at North Peak eventually? Yeah, I think, you know, the North Peak lift, it, it, that's a great lift. It's a Doppelmeyer machine. Um, you know, it certainly runs pretty fast. I think we're upwards of 900 feet or 1,000 feet a minute that that lift can run. So I think, you know, definitely on the long term. But the placement of that lift, I think, um, is something we've, we've, you know, maybe relocating the bottom a little bit or just tweaking things here and there just to make it a little bit more user friendly. But, uh, you know, all in all, that, that, that machine is, is strong and it does a great job in its location right now. So on the subject of North Peak, I've spoken to some locals who were disappointed that that lift doesn't seem to be running midweek this season. Is that still the case? And if so, why is that? Yeah, we've been cut back on the operation of that a little bit. I, I think a little bit has to do with staffing has been a challenge for us this year in a COVID environment. Um, I think that that's one thing that plays into a fact. And I think it also, it, it's some of, most of the skiing off of that is, is still accessible. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, we, we don't, running the redundant lift uh, midweek when staffing is a challenge uh, certainly is something we play into effect. But as we kind of get things moving in the heart of the season here, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to understand where the, the skier demand is. And if it, and if it involves uh, running that machine, we're, we're certainly trying to make the effort to do so. And how about a South Ridge? Uh, again, Sunday River 2030 called for a long-term replacement over there. Where, you, where What's your thinking at South Ridge? Yeah, we're still trying to figure out the, the, the flow of Southridge, definitely the hub of the resort, right? Um, a lot going on here. I think I, I never saw Southridge without any of the conveyors, the new conveyor area over there. But I think those have really helped to, to reshape the base area here and the learning experience. Um, did, I don't I don't know if you had a chance to go over and see those conveyors. I, I did, yeah. My, I, uh, they opened on my last day there and my son really, really liked them. We, we spent a long time over there and Going up. That third one was a little steep for him, but um, the, uh, they, and it moves fast. Oh, my God. I, I don't know if that's because it's on such an angle, but uh, we but the, the lower two were terrific for him. He's four. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are the Cadillacs of, of conveyors, right? I mean, they're, they're well-designed. They're well-placed on the hill. A lot of thought, obviously, went into those. The, the canopies over them are awesome. They're Sunday River red. I mean, it's just an inviting area. Um, Snowmaking did a phenomenal job of putting a bunch of snow over there. We've got terrain-based learning. So that I think that has really helped from what I've been told, um, the flow of Southridge, and uh, which, you know, affects any other lift uh, thoughts we have for getting, you know, guests out of the area or, you know, bringing people to this area for the learning. So um, really just understanding what those conveyors did, not only for our ski school programming, but also for flow for this area um, is still part of our learning process. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the adjacent lifts that allow a very particular type of skier to segregate off and do their thing. Like, I really like underneath uh, lock where you have the T-bar 
for the racing folks, which takes a lot of pressure off Lock and Barker. And then I, I like the uh, the conveyors over there by South. That's really nice to just the, get the the little ones who are only ready for that, you know, very gentle terrain can just separate off into there. And that seems to work really well. Yeah. Yep. No, I've, I've really thought that those conveyors are a home run and, and uh, really happy with those. Okay. Well, those are all the specific lift questions I had, but there's a lot of lifts there and I might've overlooked something. Anything else you can update us on? No, I, you know, I think the lift infrastructure here is, is super strong. Uh, a great team of guys and gals that, that support it. Yeah. We're, we're constantly, and like, you know, being a lift guy, um, we love geeking out about chairlifts and, and, and thinking about what's next and, and, and how we can move people safely and more efficiently uphill um, is certainly the goal. And we will continue to, to strive to, to up that and to create a great lift experience for our guests. So let's talk about trails a little bit. Uh, Dana and I talked a bit about the potential to cut more trails on existing peaks. And he said there's a master plan uh, hidden in a desk drawer somewhere that he hinted could could happen someday. As you're getting to know the mountain, are there any places in particular where you would like to see new trails cut on the existing footprint? Yeah, there's a few little things here and there that we've kind of come up with. I, you know, nothing major right out of the bat. I think that, you know, we have dusted off that master plan, something that has really been something that we've, we've spent a lot of time on, you know, obviously with the rollout of 2030 and, and just creating a roadmap for, for not only where we want to be, but what it takes to get there um, and, and set some expectations for ourselves that, you know, master planning doesn't happen in, in two days. And then is you know, in, in one year from now is, is done and behind us. This is a living and breathing document that, that is not only where we want to be, but um, what we're doing now is, is how we get, how are we going to get there? And I think that's really what we're spending the time on and, and focusing on the hill and saying, okay, well, is, is there a point of congestion here or is there a better way um, to get guests that want to experience Aurora and they want to get over to white cap quicker is, and I'm using that as an example, but is there, is there a way we can, we can answer the guest questions and get them where they want to without riding a lift? So those are the, the first areas we're looking at. And what are some of those problem areas that you're looking at? Um, I think just any point of congestion on the hill, uh, ways around it, ways to expand them. This year, you know, we, we really looked at um, areas, beginner areas, and, and just giving ourselves enough runtime on our snowmaking system just to make sure that, you know, where we have a lot of guest demand, that we have enough snow to push that terrain, kind of as I call it, wall to wall, right? And really get that skiable surface from edge to edge. So I think that, that that's, you know, short term, our goal. And then long term, just making sure that, you know, we, we, we've got the right amount of skiing for the right abilities for the demand that we have off of that kind of lift pod, if you will. So going off trail, I know you're a big glade guy. So am I. Uh, Sunday River has a really great on the map glade network. Uh, is this something you'd like to add to? I, I think I still haven't had the, too much opportunity this year, unfortunately, to get into a lot of glades. I'm excited to check out what we have here. I know that this summer we did a ton of mowing in all of our glades to just maintain what we currently have. Um, and I, it's a pretty big number. I don't have it off the top of my head of, of how many skiable acres we have in the glades in front of me. But I think that, you know, always maintaining what we have uh, and looking to potentially grow that is, is something that we talk about for sure. And so do you have any general sections in mind just from talking to the crew that you think would make for appropriate glading, or is it just too early for you to say? It's too early to say. I, there's nothing that jumps out at, at us right now. 
but it's not, you know, we don't have a plan, you know, for this summer or next to blow out this section and offer more glade skiing. But I think we're, we're definitely committed to what we have. And then always having in the back of my mind that if we do get some sort of expansion, what, what the glade possibility would be like, because it certainly is some awesome skiing. So I, uh, I didn't see this in the 2030 plan, but any, any plans for additional warming huts anywhere in some of the more re- remote areas, uh, like out there between Jordan and North? Uh, as of right now, we don't have too much on the table for that. Um, you know, long term, we have some new, you know, potential base lodges or major upgrades to some to some facilities. But uh, short term, there's nothing much on the plan. All right, let's talk about snowmaking. Uh, just personally, what are your short and long term snowmaking goals? Just lay those out for us. Sure. You know, what a massive infrastructure here at Sunday River. Um, I think probably sixty to eighty miles of snowmaking pipe here. Right uh, on our current system, it's just an animal. Short term, we've been really embracing uh, efficiencies, and, and not only is that um, and how we're moving water, um, but also with the, the gun technology that we have on the hill, really utilizing the ability to use less energy and produce more uh, quality snow is, is something that these guys on the hill, day in and day out, are, are constantly thinking about doing, which is really impressive and, and neat to see. It's not just the the quantity, it's the, also the quality of it. So I, I don't have a super deep or nuanced understanding of snowmaking myself. So I crowdsourced a few questions for this interview and uh, it, your skiers are very, very passionate about this part of Sunday River. Um, so I'll go through these. Uh, the first question was, well, it had to do with, quote, the amount of patches on snowmaking pipes, which increases friction, not to mention the chance of blowouts, leading to a loss of capacity once water makes it out to Jordan due to temps being notable above freezing. Why not replace more of the damages, damaged snowmaking pipes? Unquote. So I guess my question for you, Brian, is, is there truth in this allegation that there are a substantial number of damaged pipes that are in need of replacement, or is that a misconception? I think that person, Guy or Gal, was definitely an engineer. Because when you're talking about the amount of friction loss and how that relates to pressure loss through a pipe um, is something I really, I, I understand, but, um, you know, I, I learned from, from an engineer uh, the effects of that. So well, that's a pretty in-depth question. Right. Um, you know, th- there's definitely some, some pipe on the hill that is patched. Um, there, there's no doubt about it. You know, the, the friction loss that, that the water moving over that patch um, gets disrupted and there's a pressure loss that's really kind of geeking out about pressures and, and, and how efficiently you can move water. There are two things that we, in snowmaking, that you're always kind of fighting. And, and one of them is that when you move the water through the pipe, there's friction and that uh, decreases the pressure. And then also you're fighting gravity, right? So if we got to pump water from Parker to the top of Jordan, there's gravity fighting against you. And so that gravity will actually also decrease the pressure. And, um, a lot of our new technology for guns thrive on high water pressure. So going back to the question, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of pipes that have maybe been replaced or patched or look rusty, but a lot of these pipes, um, although they look rusty and old and in the woods, they actually are doing a wonder, wonderful job for us, right? They're holding pressures. We're having no problems with them. Still making pipe on the side of the trail, although we want it to blend in. Um, we're not out there painting the pipe every summer and this, you know, it, it is all steel and it's, um, exposed to the elements. So, um, seeing a rusty pipe on the side of the trail does not necessarily mean that it's, it's in bad shape. 
uh, as we move forward and, and we replace snowmaking pipe and we put new snowmaking in at Merrill Hill, um, we definitely have some design criteria that we go by. So all of our pipe that we replace pipe with on the hill when it's time or new pipe installations will um, last us at least 40 years. That's kind of our design spec for that, if, if not more. So um, I think that, uh, yeah, there may be a few patches on some pipe out there, but uh, you know, 98% of this pipe is holding the pressures that it's designed to hold. And when we do have a little situation, the team here, uh, we have some unbelievable skill sets that can uh, repair and quickly move on. Yeah, I mean, if you look at that that forty year number, Sunday River, unlike a lot of resorts in the East, I mean, it, it was just like you said, Barker for decades, and Les Otten's big overhaul of that mountain and growing it out didn't really start until the mid to late '80s. So, so you should still be within that lifespan for a lot of that stuff. Um, moving on here, there's also a lot of curiosity about specific gun technology. This question comes from a skier or snowboarder named Matt Karen. Quote. Since Brian came from Peaks and they were very focused on fan gun tech for snowmaking, I wonder if he is considering moving Sunday River in that direction, specifically as to the wider trails out in Jordan. I asked as a friend sent me a shot yesterday of a new fan gun that looked like a super pole cat arriving on a flatbed with some other snowmaking hardware. Also follow up with the progress toward doubling the on-hill water capacity. They have boosted at 20%, I think, to date. Look, looks like the mountain received several new gun types from SMI this week, a fan and a couple of air slash water types, end quote. Uh, any comment on any of that and, or, and specifically the types of gun tech you prefer and why you think Sunday River should move in that direction? Yeah, so we, we certainly are. Um, we have been testing a lot of different equipment, both from the, the SMI group as well as um, HKD, two manufacturers that we have good working relationships with. So those are things that we are constantly testing out new technology. We've had some new fan guns here over the past couple of weeks, and we've been putting them uh, different places on the hill and, and different locations with some different pressures and some different temperatures. So it's been really fun to, to see some of this newer technology being not only talked about in our industry, but then when it actually is here and it's, it's on the ground and we can touch it and feel it and, and see what it's doing at 28 degrees. And we can see what it's doing at four below. The other day we had these guns just, just moving you know, hundreds of gallons of water a minute from. So it's been really fun to, to do that. So yeah, there's a lot of things that go into play when, you know, choosing the technology on the hill, whether it be a, a fixed flow gun, which just does X number of gallons a minute through it, regardless to a, you know, a gun that'll, some of our HKD guns can do, 13 gallons on one setting and then up to 65 or 70 gallons a minute on, on other settings, you know, and having the, the ability to change the flow of those guns. And then we have, you know, the fan gun technology too, which, you know, the, the Boyne Low E is something that you see scattered throughout Sunday River and has been just a, a really hard and true fast gun for, for Sunday River and Boyne as a whole. So, you know, choosing the right gun for the right location, like on Merrill Hill, you're not going to see fan guns on Merrill Hill, you know, you can see narrower trails and and, uh, you know, that, that technology just wouldn't, it's not conducive to that kind of trail design. But yeah, you know, when you start to get into wider trails, whether it's over at the Jordan or over at Barker or, you know, at the base area here is when we were uh, right out in front of Southridge. Some of those areas where you just can't have enough snow, um, having that, that fan gun technology that can just, I mean, some of these guns can flow, you know, hundreds of gallons every minute out of them and have some really phenomenal snow quality. That is a tool that we definitely need in our arsenal for wide open terrain that, that just needs a lot of snow. So I have another very specific question here. Quote, can the race arena snowmaking line be extended full length of Monday morning for the Gould program? 
If yes, that might allow T2 to more regularly be open to the public, especially on weekends. End quote. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not, not a crazy idea for sure, right? I think that, um, you know, racing is something we are certainly very embraceable of here at Sunday River and, and just the relationship that we have with, with the race community in, in all of New England and all over the United States for that matter and, and having Gould here five to six days a week and having competition programs uh, at, at all levels, whether it be through our own programming and conjunction programming with Gould Academy, hosting these type of events, um, you know, a nice, big, safe race arena is certainly something that we strive to provide as, as well as, you know, USSA and FIS and all these competitions, you know, require trail width to be certain amounts. So uh, always looking there. So, yeah, there, there's there's few. You could continue that line up. You could take that line out. You could put in a bunch of fan guns. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of skin the cat over there. Um, I think keeping all of the racing in one area certainly also has its benefits, right? That um, our guests know that uh, that's where the race training is going to be happening and that it's not going to be kind of, you know, throughout the resort. We're going to kind of condense it to one area and make sure that um, we have the, the proper arena to, to host big events, to safely do that, and day in and day out create just a really unique and awesome arena for, for training that happens here at the resort six, six to seven days a week. So the good news is, as we talk about all the snowmaking, is you obviously have Boyne's unqualified support to push the best technology and get the best coverage. And when Stephen Kircher, CEO of Boyne, came on the podcast, we talked a lot about snowmaking uh, and his quest to eliminate boilerplate in New England. And a reader, Andy Eichelberger, wanted to ask you a follow-up question. Quote, Stephen Kircher said that Boyne's approach to snowmaking is to blow only in very low temperatures and that this can essentially eliminate ice. How do you see that working in the Northeast? Some are skeptical that this approach would work at Sunday River due to the substantial thaws, free cycles, end quote. I personally, Brian, I find the weather in New England to be very similar to Michigan, where I grew up and where Kircher said they've been perfecting this process at Boyne Mountain and Boyne Highlands. Uh, but what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, the weather is certainly challenging here in New England. Um, my first day, you know, first Christmas here in, in Bethel area, uh, we had three inches of rain and my kids came up to the mountain and walked around in the slush. Um, but uh, when it comes to snowmaking, I, I think Mr. Kircher is pretty spot on. I think the um, technology that we have at our fingertips, whether it's the Boyne Lowy fan gun, uh, some HKD equipment, uh, SMI gun that we're testing out, that there are so many different tools to, to get the job done. And that Boyne and our industry is provided for us here at Sunday River, that that is 100% an achievable goal. So that was the last specific question I had, but I had a lot of queries just in general about the whales. Uh, there was a big, long, fun line of them off Jordan the week I was up there. Is there a reason these may have been left around longer than what some folks are used to? Is this an operational thing that you prefer, or is it just a quirk tied to the weather and when you can actually go and spread that snow out? Did you have fun on those whales? Did you oh, yeah. yeah. Weren't they awesome? Yeah, <laughs> I, had, I had a good that's time why, on them, yeah. I think that's why they stayed around, to be honest. You know, <laughs> I was just After skiing them, we had a snow plan. I was like, boy... A lot of fun. I'd like to do that again tomorrow. Like, why can't we do yeah. that? Well, let's do it. It's like an <laughs> impromptu terrain park. It's really, it was really cool. Wasn't it awesome? It really, yeah. I, I called up Steve, our vice president of mountain ops. And Steve, my, my kids weren't able to ski those. And I think Elsie, my youngest, would absolutely love them. Can we leave them for a day? <laughs> so, um, there's also, you know, a ton of advantage to, to, to leaving snow in piles for a little bit. You know, and that was certainly the perfect storm. The, 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 the snow throughout those were dry and letting them sit for a little bit only helps that process out. 
I think that the um, skiability of them uh, for a few days, I think we left them there for six or seven days. People were just having a blast. And I think came a point in time where we kind of went maybe it was a freestyle or we just wanted to, to kind of push that, that snow out and move on from it. But um, I'm glad you had fun. I think we had some great feedback from our guests uh, on that. And I think, you know, that time of year, especially, it, right, it added we didn't really have uh, T72 or a terrain park open. So it gave us a little bit of a variety. Uh, in our surface conditions, and they skied awesome. So I think it was fun to leave them for as long as we did. Yeah, it almost felt like skiing in the woods a little bit, just because you didn't really ever know it was going to be over the next hump, and you, <laughs> yeah. you kind of had to be prepared for it. And there could be a sudden drop, and then, you know, uh, a nice shot and a little jump upward. It was it was really neat. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, just for fun. For fun. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the computer hack that Sunday River had this past fall. What can you tell us about that and how you were able to respond? Yeah, I think anytime you have a you know a cybersecurity incident, that there, there's always some challenges. Um, I think that uh, the team here, um, IT team, it was really interesting to watch our IT team and our corporate group um, quickly <clears throat> get on top of that, right? And and quickly um, it affected all of our systems, so quickly shut them down. And, and just how that team worked through it was was super impressive, Stuart. It, it really was. Um, uh, inspirational to, to be a part of, of making sure that um, our, our system was secure and is secure and, and, and good to move forward. So uh, unfortunate, but super fun to, to watch that team just react and, and to, to secure and make sure that we are safe. Is cybersecurity, is this something that Boyne handles as a shared service company-wide or, or is each resort in charge of its own? No, we definitely have, uh, like a lot of our systems, like, you know, Mountain Ops, we have a senior vice president in IT and food and beverage. So regardless of the system, we, we, we definitely have a lot of specialization at our corporate level. And I think that it's something that regardless of it's an IT system or a lift system or a, or a fundamental change um, in our food and beverage system, like we did this, this year, we went to a new uh, food and beverage system. So, you know, a lot of support from not only corporate IT, but also from corporate food and beverage. Um, it, it's really nice to have the added support uh, that, that we get from, from our corporate team. So any long-term fallout from that attack or, or any of the data you might have lost that you, or, or were you able to recover everything and, and move on to business as usual with a more secure environment? Yeah, I think I, it, we are we are moving on from that. We've uh, recovered and I think that uh, you know the company is, as a whole is, uh, is onward and upward. All right, so let's just talk a little bit about COVID ops. Uh, you started at Sunday River in May, and like we said before, that took up most of your first few months. Uh, before we get into specifics, do you think it was helpful, Brian, that you were new to the mountain and you weren't married to previous ways of doing things as you went through this process of upending every single step of the skier experience? Yeah, I think I think um, being new was certainly um, a little awkward in some situations, but also a really neat perspective to bring into the senior team here because uh, a lot of the senior team members have, have are, are tremendously skilled in, in the air, in their areas of expertise. But, you know, it's always interesting being the new guy coming in and asking why, why do we do this or, or explain why this is like that. Um, I, I think it, it was, it was fun, uh, a little bit of challenge to it, you know, explaining why we do things. And once you do that, it, it, it kind of makes you think back, well, maybe there is a different way of doing something here. And I think, not only was it my perspective, but it was also the COVID environment and the changing rules and guidelines that we'd had. Not only, you know, it seemed like the state was changing things as well as the CDC, just in reaction to the way the, 
the world was things were happening in the world. So, you know, having a new perspective, I think, was helpful, especially during a COVID environment. Yeah, and I think that doesn't diminish at all the experience and ability of the teams you inherited. How much did you rely on them, Brian, to help you understand how the mountain worked during ski season? Because you had never been there during the winter. All of a sudden, you're being asked to completely rethink the operations of the ski area in the winter. And obviously, you'd worked in a lot of ski areas and, and could puzzle most of it together. But but how important was that team to helping you figure out the way forward? Yeah, super helpful, for sure. Uh, I mean, just re- rely on, on, like I mentioned, uh, I'm a collaborator, right? So I think that, that having that kind of atmosphere here really uh, allowed us to, I think, succeed in, in 98% of our of how we implemented things for COVID. You know, we, we certainly learned a lot by that, right? None of us have area operators over me being 25 years in it, you, you always been thrown challenges, right? Whether it's weather or extenuating circumstances that affect the resort. But um, I don't know how many people have operated a resort through a global pandemic before. So the, the, the playbook or the unwritten rules out there were like, oh boy, we got to figure this out. So just having people to collaborate with who understood the resort and had a certainly a complete understanding of not only the resort, but our industry and what you know, resources we have out there, not only from our, our corporate guidance, which was phenomenal, top-notch, our involvement with NSAA and some of the programming, the Ski Well, Be Well programming that we had, you know, I, I believe Mr. Kircher and Rick Kelly and uh, John McGregor from our company, they were all involved at, at the NSAA level of, of, of really influencing where our industry is going to be. And, and uh, knock on wood, I think there's been a lot of success with that planning and programming here at Sunday River as well as other resorts. So. So you had that long, uh, that long period to get ready, and now you've had a couple months to kind of get through it, including a couple of holiday periods. Uh, what's been working, and what have you had to adjust along the way in your COVID operations plan? Um, I, like I said, I think about 95 to 98% of it's been working for us. Definitely some tweaks. You know, we had a, a whole plan for Southridge, what door would be in and what door would be out. And we walked it about five times, eight times this summer. We wanted to build a wall here, there, and everywhere. But... I think, you know, once once the guests started showing up and we really started to watch, you know, what what the guest flow was giving a COVID environment, because that really has changed quite a bit, too. Um, we had to, to, to modify a few things. Oh, boy, the indoor should be over here and not the outdoor over there, vice versa. Making sure that we have the right capacity in some of our lodges and having teams with the technology to be able to count how many people are in our lodges at all times. So there was a little bit of a learning curve with that. But uh I think, you know, uh, giving an ever-changing environment with that, we've been working really well with the state and the CDC, and, and um, we've got it figured out until the, the next the next COVID guideline comes out. So I'm sure this is the least of your concerns, but uh, a hot topic among skiers in the fall is always the fight between Killington and Sunday River to see who's going to open first. And obviously that was suspended this year because everyone wanted to make sure they had more terrain open before they could actually get the lifts running, but is that something you'd like to get back to as soon as COVID lifts? I, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that we're going to look back on and say, you know what? Yeah, we, we want to bring this back, right? Because that was fun. And, and I think, um, you know, the the Sunday River and Killington, who's going to open first, um, yeah, that was always fun to watch out, you know, being an outsider to watch that kind of play out. But at the same time, I, I think we're, we're definitely learning a little bit more, you know, opening this year, we made the, the decision not to open with a downloading experience for our guests going into it this year, you know, we wanted to open with top to bottom skiing and making that conscious effort to do so. So, you know, being able, because of that, you know, extenuating circumstances, being able to offer a different product certainly made it 
you know, there's certainly some pros and cons with that. Now deciding on what we're going to go back to, or are there things that we're going to stick with, or did, what did we learn, and maybe we could change even more so going forward. Now it's time to, you know, to try some of this stuff, to take a lot of notes, find out what really works, and then also, you know, have our guests tell us what what's working and what experiences they they have found to be uh, a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah, and that's my last question for you today, Brian. Is all the GMs I've spoken with recently have agreed that. Even though COVID's been terrible for any number of reasons, it's provided us with this really once in a generation or, or maybe once in a century opportunity to just completely rethink the lift surf skiing experience. Uh, what are some COVID era operating changes that you think might stick around after COVID is gone because they revealed better ways of doing things? Yeah, there's definitely some things that I think we've instituted here. Uh, as an example, like ability to do online ordering and touchless pay, right? I mean, that that I think is is what we're finding is our guests love that. And regardless of, of whether or not you're worried about a COVID environment or not, it gives you a lot more flexibility uh, in your dining experience here at the resort and it gives you so many more different ways to, to explore that. So that's something, you know, positive that's coming out of this. And, you know, do we go back to ever seeing a, a bag, tripping over a bag in a base lodge because you can't bring them in? I, I'm not sure about that. Uh, kind of enjoying it, but uh, we'll see what the future of bags and base lodges are. But I think, you know, Online ordering, um, RFID ticketing, um, some of the things that we've really done a lot of thought process and, and have some infrastructure change. We are finding that those are, 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 regardless of a COVID environment, are really beneficial to our guests, and our guests are really giving us some really good feedback about it. So that's, you know, COVID aside, it's, it's fun to to make a big change like that and have the guests really enjoy, um, you know, they had that change make their experience here that much better. Well, it'll be interesting to see it evolve both at Sunday River and throughout Boyne and throughout the industry. All right, Brian. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I kept you way over. Um, but like I said, Sunday River is the mountain I get asked about the most, the one that people seem to have the most interest in in the entire Northeast. So I'm sure that all of your skiers will really appreciate all of the time and insight that you gave to us today. So thank you very much for all that. Yeah. Thanks, Stuart, for your time. And hopefully we can make some turns later this year. So appreciate it. Absolutely. would Love that. All right. Take care. All right. Take care, Stuart. Thanks. That's Brian Heon, General Manager of Sunday River, Maine. What did you think about that, Sunday River skiers? I'd be feeling real good about that hire if I were you. You know, Boyne is known for promoting from within, so when they bring someone in from the outside like that, you know they thought real hard about it. I do think Brian's the right guy for that job, and he's likely to be there for a long, long time. He's a young guy, he's got his family resettled in Bethel, he's there for the long haul. So thank you very much for that, Brian, and best of luck to you as you help guide that mountain's future. And thank you all for listening. Next week, Ski Vermont President Molly Mahar. That one's already in the hopper. I have to edit it and push it out to you. I have a couple more fun interviews that I'm ready to announce. Mixing it up a little later this month with a talk with Greg Fisher, General Manager of Granite Peak, Wisconsin. Also have our first Pennsylvania pod lined up with Charles Jefferson, the managing owner of Montage Mountain in Pennsylvania. Those are two awesome ski states. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Incredible skiing cultures, and I'm really looking forward to chatting about those. Remember, subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com to get those podcasts and much more content as soon as it is live. Also, follow me on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.